morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you today. Good morning, everybody online. We're glad you could join us as well. I am not much of a poker player, if I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I just don't have the stamina for the game. I'm good for the first 30, 45 minutes. After that, my attention span is just, it's gone. I don't care anymore. And I kind of start to notice I make some sloppy bets and bad plays. And when I do recognize this, that's when I know it's time to just go home. So I make my move. I go all in. I don't look at my cards sometimes. Sometimes I do. It annoys the people I play with. But I put all the chips in the middle in one do-or-die play. And most of the time, it doesn't work out for me. In fact, every time, it doesn't work out. I've never won that way. It's risky to go all in, which is why a lot of people don't do it. I mean, on the one hand, you could double your money in one hand. On the other hand, you could lose everything in one go. It's, it's a risk. This morning, we're going to be looking at a couple of parables from Jesus' teachings in the book of Matthew. And it's about two guys that did go all in and gave everything they have for one big play. It's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn there with me and follow along. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device and tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner. You'll find our sermon notes tool that's got our passage pulled open along with the sermon outline. You can take some notes to get the most out of our time together today. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Here's our two stories. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. Two guys go all in on one big play, and you probably guess this story, both these stories, they have nothing to do with cards or poker or anything like that. And as Jesus says, it has to do with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's a concept that we've been learning about over the last eight months as we've been in this series called A Year-ish with Jesus. We've just been reading the, the teachings of Jesus, watching the life of Jesus, just learning what he has to say about this thing called the kingdom of God, this message that God's in charge now. He reigns over this world, he reigns over our lives, and we have the opportunity to be a part of what he's doing. Now, to go all in like these guys on the kingdom of God... It's kind of a risky venture, and there are reasons that people don't do it. Those are things we want to be aware of because we may find ourselves hesitant from time to time to go all in on living life on God's terms, being part of his kingdom. Sometimes the reason we hesitate is maybe we just don't recognize the incredible opportunity that God has put before us. It's easy to overlook. Maybe we get distracted with life and his day-to-day needs. Things are grabbing our attention. We just don't see it. Now, there's something I want to point out about these two parables. Actually, it's about the treasures in these parables, both the treasure in the field and the pearl. There's like this hidden quality about them. The guy who who finds the treasure in a field, it's not like there was a big spotlight on this treasure chest in the middle of a field that's just open out there for everybody to see and come enjoy. It's kind of hidden. He has to find it, and when he does, he hides it so he can go buy this field and have claim to it. There's this hidden quality to it. And this pearl of great price, it's not like he was driving down the interstate and there's a big billboard that said, world's largest pearl, turn here at exit 95. Like, he had to find it. He was searching for it, looking for it actively. There's this kind of exclusive quality about these things where not everybody is going to get to enjoy them. 
And Jesus actually talks about God's kingdom, this idea of the gospel and this changed life, in much the same way. Throughout all of chapter 13 of Matthew, Jesus has been trying to use these little parables, these little slice of life stories, to explain to us what God's kingdom is like and what it's not like. And in one of them, we read it a few weeks ago, he says, well, the kingdom's kind of like a farmer planting seed. You know, the message, it goes out to all of these people, but it doesn't always take root. Sometimes it lands on the little stony paths between the field, and it never germinates, never grows in anything. The birds take it away. And in much the same way, sometimes people hear the message of the gospel, this message that God's in charge, he wants to change our lives and change this world, and it just never takes root. For whatever reason, you know, maybe it's the troubles of life, maybe it's a struggle, maybe it's just stress, who knows? It just doesn't take root. It doesn't amount to anything. But they're also good soil. And sometimes that message, it hits a good soil, it hits the human heart, it takes deep root, and it changes people's lives, and it takes control. And if you're here, if you took the time to show up on a Sunday morning to listen to this message, or if you're listening to this message at a later time, there's a chance that's you, that you heard this message, that you responded to it. Even if there's just a small part of you that believes it, maybe you haven't even acknowledged yet, this is you. I read a story kind of like this. It's kind of a surprising faith in somebody. He was even surprised that it showed up. He was a journalist. I believe he worked for The Atlantic. It was either The Atlantic or The Independent. I don't remember, but it was an online publication. And he talked about the story of his conversion to Christianity. For most of his life, he had been a critic of the faith because he was too educated for that or too rational for that, or he was a pretty good person. He didn't really need religion to change his life in any way, he thought. And then one day, he was getting ready for work. He got into it with his wife. They got into a tiff. And it wasn't like a drag-out brawl or anything. It was just one of those normal, busy, hectic morning arguments. And he drove kind of angry. He got into the office. He sat down in his cubicle, and he started to think about it. And he came to realize, you know, I think I was at fault for that. I was kind of the bad guy there. And then his brain wouldn't shut off, and it just kept thinking about some of the other negative interactions he had had with people over recently. And, and he came to realize, you know, I think I was at fault for a lot of those, too. And he started to feel kind of bad. And then over the course of the next 10 minutes, he sort of relived 30 years of life experience with a whole new lens on himself. And he came to realize, I don't think I'm a very good person. And it actually like bothered him so much, he had to get up and go hide in the janitor's closet because he was starting to hyperventilate and he was just sobbing because he had this realization that this is who I really am. And this is who I'm probably always going to be. And I'm going to die someday and people are not going to talk about what a great journalist I was. They're going to talk about, man, that guy was kind of a selfish jerk. And it just weighed on his heart so heavy the reality of who he really was. And that's when something just clicked in his brain, almost like a voice, said, this is why Jesus matters so much. Because at the end of the day, we really do need a God who is bigger than us. Because we really do need saved from something. And most of the time, it's ourselves. And in this surprising conversion, he stood up in that janitor's closet and wiped his eyes and said, I think I'm a Christian now. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Like the heavy, the Holy Spirit just like laid heavy on this guy's heart. But that's not a story that everybody can share. That doesn't happen to everybody. Like that's not an everyday occurrence. But for those of us in this room that believe, while the details may be different, there's a similarity here. The Holy Spirit got a hold of your heart. And for whatever reason, you were blessed with the faith to say yes to this thing we call the gospel. 
And that's a privilege that not everybody enjoys. In fact, two-thirds of our planet, statistically speaking, do not say yes to the gospel, do not believe they need saved through Jesus, have not enjoy, or, or, or said yes and accepted this invitation that God gives. But you have. And chances are you were blessed even further with people and opportunities in your life that encourage you to say yes to this. Maybe you were loved into this faith by somebody. Maybe you had a parent, maybe you had a grandparent, a family member that just loved you enough to say, I want you to know the truth about who God is. Maybe they brought you to church. Maybe they raised you to church. Maybe they made sure that you were coming to VBS when you were a kid. Maybe you had somebody that loved you into this faith. Or maybe you had somebody that prayed you into this faith. And unbeknownst to you, there was somebody, a friend, a neighbor, a relative, that was bringing you up in prayer for days and weeks and months and years and maybe decades. They were bringing your name before the throne of God every night saying, I hope they find you. And you were prayed into this faith. Or maybe you just happened to live at a time period and in a place where it is most conducive and easiest to hear the gospel preached freely and to say yes and actually follow the teachings of Jesus with little to no consequence. That's not something that everybody gets to enjoy. We were born in this time and in this place. We could just as easily have been born in Afghanistan, where 0.45%, not 4.5%, 0.45% of the population are Christians, where 2.9% of the population say, I know a Christian. That means 97 some odd percent of people don't even know a Christian they might hear the gospel from. And even if they do, this is not a land and a culture where you get to preach the gospel of Jesus and follow him without consequence. Or we could have been born in North Korea, where less than 2% of the population are Christian, where only 6% of the population even knows of another Christian. And it is entirely against the law to practice that faith in any meaningful and out loud kind of a way. We could have been born in these countries or any of the dozens of other places that are not conducive to this message. The chances of somebody having somebody love them into the faith in these places or pray them into the faith in these places or to just hear the message of Jesus freely lived and practiced is depressingly small. But that's not you. Because you live now here with these people in your life that have shaped you and brought you to this moment. That is an amazing opportunity to say yes to this eternity-changing invitation and to live for him. That's not something to be squandered. The highest hand you can be dealt in poker is the royal flush. Ten, jack, queen, king, ace, all suited. It's not common to get that hand. In fact, the odds of being dealt a royal flush are 300, let me get this right, 349,739 to one. It does happen every once in a while, though. And so I was curious, how do people respond when they're dealt that hand? Like, is it just such a rush? You can't, like, your poker face evaporates? Like, what do you do when you have that hand? So I went on the internet, like everybody does, and I started to read the stories of people who had been dealt a royal flush. My favorite one was of a couple of brothers. There's an older brother, a younger brother. The older was teaching the younger how to play the game. Very first hand of poker this younger brother has ever played in his life. Cards get dealt out, royal flush. Very first time. It's an unbelievable thing. But it's also kind of a tragedy 
because there's absolutely no way this guy can appreciate the cards in his hand. He has nothing to compare it to. He has no comprehension of how fortunate and lucky he really is. And most tragically of all, it was a practice game, so there was absolutely no money to be won, right? That's what we call a waste. It was squandered. Church, you and I have been dealt the royal flush of opportunities. We live in a time and in a place where the gospel is freely known and can be freely followed. Many of us have people in our lives that have loved us, who have prayed for us, who have modeled for us what it looks like to follow the Lord in faith and with consistency. We have been dealt the greatest cards we could ever hope for. Do not squander this. Do not waste this opportunity to give God our whole heart, to live faithfully before him. This is the kind of thing where you say, God, I'm all in. You want me to walk this road of faithfulness, this life that you've marked out for me? Done. I'm in. You want me to set these priorities that that give preference and priority to eternal things rather than these temporary things that promise to satisfy but always fade and disappoint? You got it. I'm all in. This is the opportunity to say yes, not just to believe, but to actually honor him with our lives because there's going to come a day where the clock runs out. And we will no longer have the opportunity to say, God, here's my whole heart. I give it to you. This is it. This is the time we have. Don't waste the opportunity that God has put before us. Sometimes that's why we hesitate. Other times, though, maybe we hesitate going all in on this gospel thing because we're afraid of the risk. It just seems like too big of a risk to say, God, I give you my whole life. Most people are risk-averse. We don't like to take risk. In fact, there's been a lot of research done in this. There's a psychologist, he's Nobel Prize winner psychologist. His name is Daniel Kinneman. In his research, he started to summarize it in a book, and he writes a really interesting observation. He says, for most people, the fear of losing $100 is more intense than the hope of gaining $150. The fear is what stops us, because our fear is greater than our hope. And maybe as you read that, you go, yeah, I get that. I'm with him. I'm super cheap. I don't want to risk $100 just for 50 bucks, right? But his point is this. Most people's fear makes them risk averse. Now, when we look at this parable, and we see, or these two parables, and we see these guys, what we notice is that they don't seem to have this same fear. They go all in. They sell everything they own. In fact, the first guy with the field, it says, enjoy, he sold everything that he possessed. It wasn't just a begrudging thing. It wasn't like, eh, I hope I do, I hope I don't. With great joy, he went all in on this. And so we might hear that and go, that seems like a risky business strategy. Because what if they lose? The fear part of us asks that question. What if I lose something? What if I miss out on something? In fact, there's a, a term, FOMO, the fear of missing out. We're terrified. We're going to miss out on an experience, an opportunity. That's one of the best bits of leverage I have over my youngest son. I don't know how to discipline him, but he's terrified of missing out on anything. So I use that to my advantage because you got to get creative as a parent. The fear of missing out. And honestly, this applies to our faith too. Sometimes we hesitate to go all in to give God our undivided devotion because we're afraid. We might lose something. We might miss out on something that this world has to offer. 
Look at different contexts, different examples. But we can look at relationships. If I were to ask you a question, this is a real brain bender, okay? Would you rather have a marriage that is blessed by God or a marriage that is not blessed by God? You want A or you want B? Who wants A? Okay, any Bs? Takers out there? None. Same in first service. Go figure. I'm falling. Got it. Okay. It was the same in first service because we all want that marriage blessed by God. Even if you don't believe, it just sounds better. That's what we want. And for those of us who do believe, what we understand is there's intimacy, there's companionship, there's trust, there's peace, there's love, there's partnership. There's a lot of benefit that comes through that God-blessed marriage. And we want that. But if you read through Scripture, what you learn is that it comes on God's terms. That there's a way to cultivate that marriage. There's an order that things go in. And that takes time. And honestly, a lot of us, were afraid of missing out. What if I miss out on the intimacy? What if we date for months? What if we date for years? And it takes that long for us to make sure this is the commitment we want to take. I don't want to miss out on the intimacy all that time. And so we're going to take the world's shortcut. We're going to be intimate now because we don't want to miss out on anything. I want that companionship. Well, again, what if it takes years for us to commit to one another, to move in, you know, to build that family, that house? I don't want to miss out on all that time. I don't want to lose that time. So we're going to, we're going to move in together before we're bound together. Because this is what the world promises will bring us satisfaction, this shortcut. All the while here is God saying, will you just give me your whole heart and honor me with all that you are and all that you do? It's a risk to trust him in the world's eyes. Or we might look at at finances. Again, same level of difficulty. Do you want financial peace and contentment or do you want financial turmoil and discontent? A or B? A? A? Again, Shocking, right? Shocking results. We all want the good stuff. And here's the thing. There is wisdom in God's word. There are ways that he instructs us to live that cultivate financial peace and contentment in this life. But it comes on his terms. And it takes time to develop. And oftentimes it requires sacrifice. And it requires an attitude that tells ourselves no sometimes. And it also involves giving away our treasures, both in worship of him and in charity to others. And that last part especially we hear and go, well, 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 that sounds too risky. How am I supposed to have financial peace if I'm giving my money away? How am I supposed to have contentment if I'm denying myself the things that are supposed to make me content? And it just sounds like a bunch of risk. God, I don't know about this. And so we compromise. And we say, I'll I'll give some, and I'll help some, and I'll be charitable a little bit, but if it inconveniences me, or it costs me something, or I have to deny myself the things I want, I'm not going to go that far. I trust God, just not enough to go all in. Or maybe it's deeper. Because who here doesn't want purpose, and satisfaction, and meaning in life? We hunger for that. And you know what? God calls us to purpose, and he calls us to a life of meaning, and he offers it to us, but again, it comes on his terms. It means calling him Lord. And by the way, that's not just a religious term for God. That's a word that means king, authority, ruler of my life. It means that we honor him with all that we are and all that we have and all that we do, and we do things on his terms. We give our whole selves over to him, but that sounds risky. Because God, you say do it one way, but I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that looks good over here. 
And it seems to make more sense if I just live life on my own terms. This is what I really want to do. And so what we wind up doing is giving God half of our heart. I'll trust you with this part of my life and this part and this part, but when it comes to my relationships, I'm going to do it my way. Or I'll trust you with my schedule and I'll trust you with what I do every morning in my devotion times. And I'm going to pray a lot. I'm going to raise my kids going to church. But you know what, God, when it comes to my career, I'm going to do what I got to do to get ahead. And we give him half our heart. Now, let me ask you another really tough question. If you're married and you say to your spouse, I love you with half my heart, where are you going to sleep tonight? I hope you got a comfy couch, right? Our husband, our wife, they don't tolerate that. Why would our God tolerate half your heart? What a slap in the face. It makes me think of this proverb. I don't know where it came from. Some people say it came from Confucius. Some people say it's an old Russian proverb. It's good no matter what. The man who chases two rabbits catches none. The man who chases two rabbits catches none. You can't chase two opposing goals and hope to accomplish either of them. I live this out in a very mild way, or I experience it in a rather mild way. I've got two sons. One is seven. One is going to be four in a couple weeks. And when mom's away, both of them want to play with dad, but they never want to play together, and they never want to play the same game. One son wants me to play video games with him on this side of the house. The other son wants me to play Legos with him on this side of the house, and they both want to do it right now. I can't be in two places at once. Even if I got them in the same room, I can't play games with one hand and build Legos with the other hand and have conversations with both kids because nobody is going to be satisfied in that scenario. And so I have to make an executive decision. Boys, we're going to play video games because dad's knees hurt when we sit on the floor too long. One goal, one rabbit. That's what you can manage. And that's true not just in life, that's true in faith as well. God's people, they tried chasing two rabbits. They tried giving him half their heart. We read about it throughout the Old Testament time and time again. My favorite example is in the book of 1 Kings. It's a time when the Israelites, they wanted to worship God, Yahweh, the God who saved them, the God who called them, the God who rescued them and made them his own. But when they looked at their neighbors, everybody else seemed to be worshiping this God named Baal, the storm God from Canaan, the God who made the rain come and supposedly made your crops grow. So we trust God to be our provider, but just in case that doesn't work out, we're going to hedge our bets and we're going to do it our own way too. Two rabbits. And again, that divided heart, that half a heart, God doesn't stand for that. And so he sends the prophet Elijah to the people of Israel, and here's what Elijah says. He went before the people and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Make a choice. Quit sitting on the fence. Quit trying to chase two rabbits. Quit giving the Lord half your heart and thinking that's satisfactory. He calls the people to make a decision. And sometimes we need to be called to that same decision. Who are you going to follow? If you want the ways of this world, if you want all that glitters and shines, if you want the promise of pleasure today, if you want to do it your way on your your terms, quit following Jesus and go do it already. But don't expect the blessings of God and his kingdom to follow. But if Jesus is Lord... If this is the God who saves us and makes us his own, the God that we says, I believe in him, I follow him, he is mine... Do it his way. 
Give him your whole heart. Chase that rabbit. Whatever metaphor you want to use, go all in on this. This is what it means to follow him. Sometimes we hear that and we go, I don't know, it's risky. But again, look at the guys in the parable. They put all they have into this play. They put all their eggs in that basket. They sell everything they have, even with joy, to purchase this valuable thing because they recognize what they stood to gain was infinitely more valuable than what they stood to lose. The fear of losing $100 was not going to keep them from the hope of $150, if you want to borrow the metaphor from earlier. There is immense value in living life on God's terms as part of his kingdom. There is immense value that you and I stand to gain. Every human being that has ever existed has the same set of desires baked into their hearts. On the most basic lizard brain level, we all want food, water, shelter, right? That's a given. Beyond that, we want meaning, we want significance, we want belonging, we want a sense of identity and purpose. These are the deep desires that make us human, and they've always been our deep desires. And the consistency of this is what allowed a guy named Abraham Maslow back in the 50s and 60s, he's a psychologist, to create what he calls Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's just this little pyramid-shaped thing that kind of describes the basic needs that every human being experiences in life. At our base needs there at the bottom, those physiological needs, those water, food, things like that. We need that. But beyond that, we have needs for safety and shelter, needs for belonging, need for esteem. At the very top of the pyramid, he calls that self-actualization. It's where we are living our best life to our fullest potential, where we are most fulfilled. And this has sort of become a blueprint for how the world finds satisfaction. And you know what? They're not wrong. There's something to this. It's not sufficient, as we're going to find, but there's something to this. We do need these things. But the world encourages us to pursue them on its terms. Do what you got to do to get ahead. You go get yours. If you got to be selfish, be selfish. If you got to cheat, then you got to cheat. If you love somebody and you know what, you're married to somebody else, you got to satisfy your own heart, right? Because you got needs. Our world encourages us to pursue self-actualization, fulfillment in a lot of ways. Here's the problem. Too many times people get to the top of that pyramid on the world's terms and they find that something is still hollow. There's a lady named Kate Spade. She's a fashion designer in New York City. She had this growing label. She had recognition. She had esteem in her career and in her circles. It was a very profitable label. She had a husband. She had a daughter. By all accounts, she seemed to be at the top of the pyramid. Her name, a lot of us will recognize, Anthony Bourdain. He was a celebrity chef. He had tons of books to his name. He had a lot of TV shows on the Food Network, on CNN. He traveled the world. He lived a fast life, enjoying a lot of the pleasures that the world has to offer. He had a, a love partner. He had a child. By all accounts, he seemed to be at the top of the pyramid. But when they were up there, life still seemed hollow. And tragically, it led both of them to take their own lives the same week of June 2018. And while most stories don't end as tragically, theirs reminds us of the thousands and tens of thousands and millions of people who've had that same experience of hollowness and emptiness living life on the world's terms. And all the while, here is God in the background holding out this invitation for the last 2,000 years. Seek first my kingdom. And my righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you as well. Because what Maslow missed was an even deeper need that every human being has at the very core of their being. 
Our deepest need is for reconciliation with our God. For the distance between us to be closed and for us to be made whole. To dwell in His presence, to be known by Him, and to know Him most fully. To seek His kingdom and to live for Him all in. And there's a funny thing that happens when that deep, deep base need is met. All the other things find themselves, or we find all those other things in our lives as well. If you want to go back to that little passage we just quoted from, Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. As far as physiological needs go, what he says is, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear for the pagans run after. They worry about those things. And your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, they'll be added unto you also. Our needs are met through the generosity of our Father who knows we need things. Our need for for safety, our security is found knowing that he is the judge of all things that sees all things, that all things will be brought to account. Our need for belonging is met when we understand he brings us into his family. He makes us a part of his kingdom. He makes us heirs of an inheritance that's beyond our wildest imagination. The story of scripture, that's our family legacy. That's who we belong to. He gives us belonging. Identity. He calls you his own. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. He says, you're made in my image. That's who you are. Our need for purpose and significance. He says, you were created to bring me honor. I created you before time, or I created you to do good works in Christ Jesus since before time began. He gives dignity to all the actions of our days, from the small mundane things to the greatest accomplishments of our lives. They bring him glory by taking care of his world and his people and the things that he's made and put in our charge. You have a glorious calling on your life, and that's to worship God through your works and your labors and your interactions. There's purpose in that. The deep needs of our lives are satisfied when we are most fully found in him. That's the invitation of the kingdom. And if you need a case study to verify all of this, you really don't need to look any further than the guy telling us these parables. Jesus is somebody who lived his life with the kingdom of God, doing it God's ways at the forefront of his life. He didn't chase after power and prestige. He didn't chase after riches and and the pleasures of this world. He lived in obedience. He lived serving people. He lived humbly. He prioritized people and relationships over treasures and possessions. And most importantly, he lived faithfully to God's ways. And that faithfulness was so intense that it led him to to die on a cross, to lay down his very life. And he had to do it because at the end of the day, you and I were not that different from that journalist we talked about earlier. We like to think we're really good people. But the scary reality sets in like when we're alone with our thoughts and we come to realize deep down at our core, sometimes I'm petty. Deep down at our core, sometimes I'm selfish. Or I'm self-centered. Or I'm self-righteous. Or I'm judgmental. When we're alone with our thoughts and we recognize deep down at our core who we really are, we come to realize, I need saved from myself. And that's what Jesus did. He died on a cross and all of his righteousness, his innocence was given to us. And all of our rebellion, all of our self-centeredness, our our, our self-righteousness, all that junk, that was put on him and it died there with him. And we were set free. That was God's calling on his life. If you think it's hard to live God's purpose for your life today, imagine that. 
Imagine God calls you up on the phone. He says, here's the purpose for your life. I want you to suffer and die unjustly for things you didn't do. That's a bitter pill to swallow. But he did it. And he was faithful to the end. And honestly, if that's where the story ended, this would be an awful story. But you and I know that's not where it ended. Jesus was raised back to life. He was rewarded. And what he gained was exponentially more valuable than what he laid down. We read about it, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Because he was faithful to the end, therefore God exalted him, glorified him, to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge, which is a fine translation, a more powerful translation, a little more accurate, every tongue confess, tell the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's king to the glory of God the Father. Because he went all in on faithfully following God and walking that road, he was given the throne. He was given the honor, the glory, the authority above all other authorities that every creature that has or will ever exist will confess the truth, you're king. That's pretty good reward. And that's what God invites us to be a part of. He invites us to lay down your life Lay down your own autonomy, this idea that you got it figured out, you can do it your own way. Take the risk and go all in. Follow him. Not just on Sunday, not just when you read your Bible devotional in the morning, not just when you pray at night. In your relationships, be faithful. In your marriages, be faithful. In your finances, be faithful. At work on Monday, be faithful. When you take care of your aging parents, be faithful. When you raise your little kids, be faithful. Honor him with all that you are and all that you have and all that you do because that, that's going all in. That's a life that reaps the reward of God's kingdom. And that's what we're invited to be a part of, church. So here's the inevitable question. Are you all in? And if not, it's time to wrestle with those deep parts of who we are. What's the part of my heart, my life, I'm holding back because I think I've got it figured out better than God? What's the part of my life that I'm trying to live on my own terms? What's the part of my story I'm trying to write myself? Because over here, you've got a God who gave everything to save you, to love you, to rescue you, and all he says is just come to me and follow me, and I will bless you with a reward beyond what you can imagine. I want to invite you, go all in. This morning, some of us already made the decision to follow Jesus, and we're on that journey more and more, day by day, giving him all that we are. Some of us this morning, though, you've not made that choice yet, and I want to implore you, you have an amazing opportunity in front of you to say yes, don't squander it. We're going to make it easy. I'm not even going to make you come up front in front of everybody and sing something. Just take that connection card out of the back of the seat in front of you and say, I want to talk about Jesus. Put your name on there. Put your phone number on there. And we'll have that long conversation to answer all the questions that you might possibly have. What does it mean to go all in on following him? But don't squander this opportunity. This is a God who gave everything he has for you and me. And that's the least that he deserves in return is all of who we are. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your incredible love and your patience. Because even when we were running from you like prodigal children, you waited and you held out that invitation to come home and you invited us to be yours. And you've given us this incredible opportunity just to belong and be loved, to be restored and to be whole, to find the fulfillment that comes from living for you because that's what we were created for. And so I pray for each of us today that we would embrace that calling. I pray that we would say yes to this invitation, that we would give our whole hearts over to you, that we would commit ourselves to you, and that you would begin restoring us and going to work in us, putting us back together the way you dream us to be. You deserve all of our worship and all of who we are. So Father, we want to give it to you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.